0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9. For those using the pew black Bibles that are around you, that's page 814. We'll be in the latter half of Matthew 9 and into chapter 10. And before I read that passage that we'll cover today, I want to remind you that as a church, our mission is to make disciples of all nations. We exist to glorify Christ by making disciples. That's how we glorify Jesus is to make disciples and do that. To what extent? When have we accomplished this mission? It's when all the nations have been reached and there's disciples all over the world. What is a disciple then? In the past, as a church, we've defined a disciple as a synonym, as an apprentice, somebody who spends time with someone learning a trade, and then that apprentice then becomes on their own doing whatever trade that they were learning from under their master, their teacher. Very simply put, a disciple is a student in that sense. What sort of trade is Jesus teaching then? Well, simply put, he is the new Adam in terms of Adam and Eve. He is the new human. He's teaching us how to be a human being. So when we say we're about making disciples, what we mean is being human beings... The way Jesus was a human being, and that's the best possible way to live in this world. And the way we want to do that is by being apprentices, to spend time with him and be like him. If you would remember two simple things, when we say disciple, we mean be with Jesus, spend time with him, and be like him. And so we're going to spend some time with Jesus right now as we open up Matthew chapter 9. We're going to look at him, we're going to see him, and spend time in this biography of Jesus And we want to be like him, and so we want to learn, how can we be more like Christ as we read this text? So follow along as I read. It's Matthew chapter 9. It's starting in verse 35 to the end of the chapter, and then I'm going to read the first five verses of chapter 10. We'll take that section for this week. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This text is a transitional text in Matthew's overall book, I was really tempted, and I still am, to just kind of nerd out a little bit on you all. And what I mean by that is uh, explain the structure of all of Matthew. And then I realized, yeah, most of you don't care about those things like I do because you don't spend all of your time really reading and studying the Bible all day as your profession. But I do, and so I get excited when I see the way that Matthew is structured literarily very beautifully. And this same verse, as a quick little nugget, is the almost same exact verse as you read in Matthew chapter 4 right before the Sermon on the Mount where it says that Jesus went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction to the people and so his fame spread. Almost word for word in the original language is the phrase I just read to you in chapter 9, verse 35. And I think it's a bookend of Jesus saying, here is the Sermon on the Mount, teaching, and then here's his healing, chapters 8 and 9. Healing time is done, transition, and we're going to get another big block of teaching. There it is real quick. I just had to squeeze it in there. So what can we learn from this section, though, about Jesus? To be like him, to be more like Jesus. And I'm going to summarize it in a sentence here. Jesus, because he cares so much for the world, he prays for laborers who will be entrusted with his mission. I think that's what's going on in our text. If you were to put it in three little bullet points, we're going to see that Jesus cares, Jesus prays, and Jesus entrusts. And those are the three things I think we should do as we respond to be more like Jesus, to be the best possible human beings in the world, to be like Jesus, filled with God's Spirit, we need to care and pray and be entrusted with a message that Jesus has given us. So first, let's look at that first idea that Jesus does care for the world incredibly, deeply. Look at the first few verses. You'll notice, like I just said in verse 35, it's, I think, of the bookend. It's a marker to show that he's just ended a big section of his book. So that was verse 35. And then you see in verse 36 is what I want us to focus in on for this first point. He saw the crowds... He had compassion when he saw the crowds. Compassion for them being the people in the crowds. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. This verse, in and of itself, is worthy of a whole sermon, but let's at least give it its own point here. It begins by saying that Jesus saw the crowds. By seeing the crowds, we're then told that that seeing, the way he observed them, led to a response. The response is compassion. There is no English word that matches this word compassion. It would take three or four or five words all put into one word to understand this word compassion. I think the best explanation I can give you, just in a quick nutshell definition of this word compassion, is gut-wrenching. The very idea of this word compassion has to do with a stirring of the bowels. You see what I mean? Like that's not just a word. Have you ever seen something or heard something and somebody might call it, I had a visceral reaction to whatever I heard or saw. I was sick to my stomach or the English parallel I think in our modern day would be, my heart went out for that thing. That's what we're seeing here with Jesus. He, he cares. He sees something After seeing it, he cares. He has a gut-wrenching, sick-to-his-stomach feeling. That in and of itself should make us pause. And remember, we're not talking just about some God, divine, so set apart from humanity and the world. Jesus was a man, a human. He had emotions. He had feelings. He cares. He cares deeply. He cares about people. So what did he see That led to that gut-wrenching response. Why does he have this compassion? And the answer the text gives is he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, and then there's the quick explanation as to why. Because this crowd of people were being harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. Immediately, that text, sheep without a shepherd, should evoke memories. If you're a Jewish person, and we believe Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, so you're reading the whole Old Testament, you should remember at least two or three different scriptures that pop into your mind. And both, or if not all of them, have to do with either not having a leader, no shepherd, or having leaders who are terrible. So essentially, you don't have a leader. And so the first reference would be in, Numbers chapter 27 when Moses knows that he's about to die and that the whole nation of Israel is not going to have a leader anymore and they're going to be led into a whole new place with a foreign people. And so he starts to fear that the people will be sheep without a shepherd. And that's when God speaks in Numbers 27, 15 to 18 to say, no, we're going to set apart Aaron Aaron will be the new shepherd. So that's one place where that phrase, sheep without a shepherd, is probably ringing in the minds of people who are reading this first century biography of Jesus. The other one was the the scripture that was read to you earlier in the service by Phil. He said that Ezekiel 34 is good background information for what we are covering here. So if you remember when we were reading that text, you had shepherds watching over the nation of Israel— And the prophet Ezekiel says that they are, instead of feeding the sheep, they are eating the sheep. It was a really like, wow, imagery if you weren't paying attention. Go back and read Ezekiel 34 later today. The shepherds over the nation of Israel were instead of feeding, they were feasting on the sheep. And that's why I think Jesus probably, and Matthew in this case, has that text in mind in particular. Because notice the way that Matthew says they were harassed, they were helpless, they were being abused. So here you have leaders over a nation and they're abusing their people in some form or fashion and God calls them out and says, I will not have this anymore. If you ever see people that are being harassed, don't think that God's sitting there and be like, yeah, I don't really care about that. The God of the Bible cares He sees, and he has compassion in the person of Jesus when he sees it in human life and blood and flesh right in front of him. But all through the Bible, we see that God cares. Look at Ezekiel 34. When God sees his people being harassed and helpless, he cares then, and he makes a promise in Ezekiel 34, and he says, I myself will come and be their shepherd. That's what was just read to you earlier in the service. I care so much, I'm going to do something about it. What does God do when he sees something like that happen? He gets his hands dirty and he comes himself to take care of the problem. Does that sound familiar to you all during this December month of the year? God coming and doing something about the problems of his nation, the people of Israel, and ultimately the world. This is the story of Christmas. I myself will come. I will be the shepherd. The story of Christmas is coming to fruition. This passage is fulfilling the prophecy, I believe, of Ezekiel 34. Instead of the sheep being eaten by their shepherds, they will have a shepherd Like Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down by green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores our soul. My cup overflows. That's Jesus. God incarnate. God become flesh, coming down to be the shepherd of God's people. Specifically here, the nation of Israel, but then as we keep reading through the Bible, the whole world. Do you believe that? Do you understand that that's what Christmas is about? That the world is lost, sheep without a shepherd. They're helpless and weak. Do you feel that at times? Do you know that God sent Jesus to be that shepherd for us? God himself will be the shepherd. And when we look at this story of Jesus and his care and his compassion, I want you to be stirred up in your heart To know that that's what God thinks about this world and us, and every time you hear some tragedy. One of our church members came up and said, just two blocks from this building, there was a terrible tragedy that lost the lives of two people. Just two blocks from this building. When you hear that sort of thing, can you look at the face of God and say, no, he just doesn't care? That's unbiblical thinking. The God of the Bible does care. He does have compassion. It stirs his stomach up. It makes him sick. Have you ever heard about church leaders abusing or harassing their members? Maybe a prominent, powerful leader sexually abusing women. Have you heard of church leaders using their position to prey on the weak and poor to get their money? Have you seen church leaders who will sue former church members? for things that they may or may not have done. Have you seen the crowds of sheep in the northwest suburbs of Chicago that have no shepherd? Even if they do have a shepherd, they don't have a shepherd because they're being harassed and abused. When we see crowds like that around us, even more recently in our church's context here at Embassy, does it make you sick? Sick to your stomach. A, a gut wrenching feeling when you hear of somebody using spiritual authority and power and doing it in a way that is in direct contradiction to how they're supposed to have that power and why God put them there in the first place. Friends, I hope and pray that anytime we hear news of this, and so, so sadly, is that news not just locally here in our community, but Time and time again, whether it's big churches or small churches, whether it's Catholic or Protestant, there have been number, numerous occasions of stories just like this. And Jesus, when he hears these things, he has compassion. He cares. And he will do something. In fact, he already has. and He will finish what he started. So look at Jesus. See him. I'm hoping that as we spend time with him, not only in this message, but repeatedly, week after week and day after day, reading the stories of Jesus, your heart, your gut will be stirred and wrenched, and you will start looking out at the crowds and the peoples the way Jesus does, not gossiping with your friend about, did you hear what happened over at that church? Or not some self-righteous, smug attitude of like, well, they deserved that. No. No. More than any human being that has ever lived, Jesus cares about hurting and harassed sheep. He does something about it. In this particular instance, Jesus does something that I think would be, to us, maybe a bit surprising. Maybe not the first thing you'd think of in your mind. What would Jesus do? He cares so much for these people that it leads him to pray. It leads him to ask for prayer. Our second thing is that we see Jesus not only caring, but that caring spilling out over into prayer. Jesus turns and sees an opportunity of these lost sheep, so follow along as I read verse 37 again. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest and send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus turns his compassion into action. He's not just overwhelmed with the terrible problem of these sheep that are being harassed. That He just says, oh, there's no point. I give up. I'm going to just be inactive. But instead, he prays and he believes in prayer and he urges us. He doesn't just pray himself. He asks us to pray with him. How many times do tragedies strike and people start lifting up prayers, but then you'll hear these people say, don't just offer your prayers. Do something about it. As if praying doesn't do something about it. Friends, we we don't need to fight against one or the other. We can do both. Praying is doing something. When we see the atrocities around the world, all sorts of them, whether they're natural disasters or evil being done by people, shootings at schools or clubs or wherever else, pray. Pray. Pray not just for the comfort of those people. Do pray for that. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send laborers and see the opportunity for the gospel. When people are hurting and helpless, Jesus wants to come. And he wants to come through people, through us. I hope this begins to shape our prayers a little differently as we think about this text and the way that Jesus responds to that situation that's before him as he sees the crowds he sees opportunity for prayer and sending of labors. John Stott is a former pastor who has passed away, who lived in London, England for a long time, or somewhere in England. And he was a pastor for, for a long, long season. And he took a little break from preaching one Sunday and visited another church out in the village. And there's an interview that he shares a story about what happened when he went to this church. He says, I was visiting a church. I was incognito. He's a well-known pastor, so potentially they might have known who he was. So he said he sat in the back row, and he slipped in, and he says, I'm not going to tell anyone who the church was. It's not like you'd be able to know who it was anyway. It was thousands of miles away from where he normally pastors. And he said, when he came to the part of the service where there was the prayer of petition, what we had earlier, where Christy led us, and he, she was leading us in praying to petition for God for our prayer requests. He said it was, it was led by a lay brother in the church. The pastor wasn't there. The pastor was on holiday or vacation. So this brother of the church prayed first that the pastor would have a nice vacation. And Pastor Stott says to himself, that's good, that's fine. Pastors, they should have good vacations. Secondly, he started praying for a lady member of the church who was about to give birth to a child and prayed for a safe delivery. And he says, "That's, that's good, that's great. Third, he then prayed for a lady who was sick in the church and then quickly said amen. The whole prayer took 20 seconds and they were done. Stott said that as he was done praying with them, he thought to himself, This little village church has a little village God. They have no interest in the world outside. There was nobody thinking about the poor, the oppressed, the refugees, the places of violence, or the evangelization of the nations around the world. Embassy church. We're not in the middle of a small village in Illinois, in the backwoods. But still the question needs to be asked. Do you have a little village, God, or do you have the Lord of the harvest that you worship, that you gather week in and week out to say, God, you are the king of creation. I invite you to come and join us for prayer. There's three occasions every week where we as a church gather with people to pray. 10 a.m. every Sunday, we have a breakfast prayer meeting. We call it various things, fellowship time, breakfast time, whatever, but the point is not the food. It's not really a big breakfast. If you go down sometimes you'll know exactly what I mean, although I know many people appreciate donuts and treats, etc. The point is to gather around tables, share things that are going on in our church's lives, and then pray. As we did this morning. We prayed for missions work in Southeast Asia. We prayed for missions work that's being done in Dubai. We prayed for a new prospective church member and the needs that they have here locally. We praised God for the faithfulness of the way he used this church body to care for the needs of members when they're going through hard times. And then we just prayed for this Sunday morning service as we were about to gather from downstairs to upstairs. Every single week, 10 a.m., we pray as a church together. Congregationally, parents, bring your kids. Encourage them to sit along and listen and pray along. Then... At 11 a.m. every Sunday, we pray every Sunday three different times in the service every time. Look at your bulletin, you'll see it yet again. A prayer of confession, which is sometimes either confession or praise, a prayer of petition, where you ask God for things, and then a prayer of thanksgiving, thanking God for His Word and what He's shown us in the Bible. Every week. If there's anything that you want to do and just come and get out of our services, hopefully you join us in prayer. Don't just listen to somebody praying. We're praying collectively and that person's leading us. This is one of the reasons why if you've ever heard people say amen after a prayer or after something said, that just means that's true, that's that's right. I agree with that statement. And so at the end of the prayer, I'm all the more eager that if you all want to start adapting congregationally as a practice, that when somebody's up here praying and if you agree with the prayer, then say somewhat loudly, Amen. So that way people can know, yeah, I was with you on that prayer. I didn't just tune out for the last 20 minutes or whatever and thinking about what's going to happen at the end of the day. I was praying with you. Amen to that. That would be a suggestion in terms of bringing our corporate prayer more corporate and not just, well, that person prayed individually from the pulpit and we just sat and listened. Was the prayer good? Was it not good? That's not what it's about. It's about us praying together. Third time we pray. Every Wednesday at 6.30 before the Wednesday Bible study, a handful of people pray for this church and the needs of this church in the world. All are welcome. Anyone can come anytime for about 30 minutes. There's a time just devoted to just nonstop praying. We just bow our heads at 6.30, and we just pray, 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 and then we stop until we're all done. You're all welcome to join us just for the prayer time, stay for the Bible study, come or don't come, but just know there's three opportunities that this church provides for you to pray on a weekly basis. On top of that, there's Tuesday and Thursday community groups where people get together and pray. There's people that meet up one another one-on-one or in smaller groups, and they pray together. Sometimes I think if you have nothing better to do to meet up with somebody, just ask how things are going and pray together. If you're thinking, how do I make a disciple? I don't feel like I can make a disciple. You could do that. You could ask questions and say, how are you doing? And then pray for that person. Even if you don't have any answers, just say, hey, that sounds like you're going through a lot. Can I pray for you right now? I really believe almost any of you in this room could do that. To be like Jesus is to hear and listen and see the needs in the world and care and then pray. Friends, how are you becoming more like Jesus? In their heart of caring and in the action of praying. What did Jesus want them to pray for? What was on his concern? It was laborers in the harvest field. I'd love to go on a little side tangent, but that harvest language all through the Old Testament is used for judgment, but here it seems as if Jesus is flipping that, that image around and saying, no, no, this isn't judgment. This is the harvest that's ripe for the evangelization and the bringing in of disciples. It's rather neat to think about what Jesus is doing in these words. But Let's go to our third and final observation about Jesus. Jesus cares. Jesus prays. And finally, Jesus entrusts his message for others to help. Look at the way he says, therefore, pray earnestly at verse 38. Pray to the Lord of the harvest, that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers into his harvest. And then the very next verse is Jesus calling 12 disciples and giving them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and heal every disease and affliction, which should Move your eyes just to what we've read earlier in verse 35, that that's exactly what Jesus was doing. Or back in chapter 4, that's exactly what it said in chapter 4 Jesus was doing. In other words, what you have here is people doing what Jesus did. And so part of following Jesus and being like him is doing the things that Jesus did. Now, there's obviously a gap. You're not Jesus, so you can't do everything that Jesus did. I don't think any of you should actually die on a cross for the sins of anyone else. Not only is that not a good idea for your future plans, but it won't do anything to save anyone's soul. But we should die to ourselves, and some of us may in fact die for our faith as that continues to happen all around the world as people are persecuted for being a Christian. Being like Jesus is doing the things he did. We've summarized this as a church by saying, speak like Jesus And serve like Jesus, if you want two simple ways. Jesus speaks. You see verse 35, he goes around the city and villages, he teaches, he proclaims good news. We should speak the message of the gospel like Jesus. But then he also heals and he brings compassionate, loving ministry. He does something, he serves people's needs. So in the most broadest, simplest categories, I'd say to do what Jesus does is to speak and serve, speak the message Jesus gave and serve with loving, caring hands and heart like Jesus. So he prays for laborers, and then he sends laborers out to do what he did. I want you to see that relationship between prayer and then these laborers who go out, these apostles, that word apostle means sent out ones, and there was 12 of them. 12 is not just an accident, like, well, there was only 12 that he could find. Well, of the 12, we noticed the last one, Judas betrayed him, so it's not like these were the best One of them was a tax collector. We've mentioned in previous weeks that several of these guys have very conflicting political and worldview differences that you kind of wonder, why did you put these people together, Jesus? It's like not just Republican, Democrat, and thinking, oh, let's try and fit those two people in the same room. It's like times that by 10 or 100, and then put those two people not just in the same room, but on mission together with the message of Jesus. See, when you're with Jesus and you're like Jesus, and you have compassion for the people around you, then sometimes these little differences that we have, they start to fade away because they're not so important. What we care about is the people that we're trying to help. I think there's something to that that we need to think about in terms of the unity of this church, that we as laborers need to oftentimes not enter, fight, and have turmoil within us, but care about the world around us. I heard one pastor one time say that him and his wife, they don't fight that often. It's not because they don't have differences of opinion or issues. It's because they're caring more about what's going on around the world, that there's not time. There's not energy to devote to the little bickering that they're going to do about what we're going to do with this or that around the house. Like, who cares? Like, there's people that are hurting and dying around the world. Let's care about what's happening in the world. I don't know if that's helpful for any of you that are married and you're having a little intra fighting about things that when you, like, step back in comparison to the needs around the world, is it really that big of a deal? Maybe just say, let's just get over it and let's move on with our lives and care about something more important, have compassion about bigger issues. John Piper has once said that the reason why prayer malfunctions in most believers' lives is because they turn what is meant to be a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom. He's well known for this little phrase. He says, until you believe that life is war, you cannot know what prayer is for. Rhymes a little bit. Until you know that life is war, you will not know what prayer is for. Piper goes on to explain prayer is the accomplishment of Jesus' wartime mission. It is as though he is the field commander, or as our text says, the Lord of the harvest. And he's calling the troops and he's saying, Go, bear fruit. He hands each of them transmitter codes and the frequency to the general headquarters and says, Comrades, the general has a mission for you. He has a mission to be accomplished. And to that end, he has authorized each of you with personal access to him, the commander, through these transmitters. If you stay in tune with his mission and seek his victory first, he will always be as close to you as your transmitter. He will give you advice. He will send in air cover. He will send in extra comrades and backup support. But millions of Christians have stopped believing that we are in a wartime life and situation. There's no urgency. There's no watching. There's no vigilance. There's no strategic planning. We live as if we're in peace and prosperity. And so what did we do with our walkie-talkies? We tied it up and made it an intercom in our cushy houses, and our cabins and boats and cars. And we don't call in firepower for conflict with the mortal enemy, but instead we ask the maid, oh, would you bring us another pillow for our den? Do you get the point? When you see the world the way Jesus does, You will pray because your heart will burn within you. It'll make you sick to your stomach. And your prayers will be for God to send troops, laborers to come alongside of you and help. Send extra firepower. Send support. We want to pray for more people to be sent out the way that these disciples were. These disciples who were as we said earlier, uneducated from very different political parties. You and I are no different. He wants to transform us. He wants to send us. He wants to change our hearts and send us out into this war-stricken world. Are you seeing the world the way Jesus does? That's the main question I want you to be thinking about today. Do you have the eyes to see the sheep, the lost sheep around us? Some of them might even be in this room. Some of us are struggling and lost right now. And he is sending you to them, maybe even right after this service. I'm not trying to be prophetic, but how open and willing are you, even now, the way we gather, the routines, and the way you think about entering and exiting the church? Is it just about you? Or is it about you being sent? God came into the world to be the shepherd for lost sheep. He himself would do it. That's the story of Christmas. Do you know that that story isn't just about him sending his son Jesus? But so that after he sent Jesus into the world to die for sinners, born so though no man may die again, born to give us second birth, born so that we could have the Spirit of God in us and empower us with gifts and abilities to be more like Jesus. He did that as he died on a cross, rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven to be that commander in the commanding office room, the right hand of God interceding for us, pouring out his spirit so that you and I could be like him. That's the story of Christmas, not just God sending Jesus, but God sending us. And so where might God send you today or this week or the rest of this month of December? Would you think about maybe one or two people that you can think of right now? God has already strategically placed you to send you out and love and care and make disciples and do the sort of things that Jesus would do. Speak words of love. Speak words of hope and truth. Speak the message and the contents of the gospel. Explain to people what Christmas really is all about. There's people that live all around us here that are from other countries, and they don't know what Christmas is about. All they see is lights and Santa Clauses and all kinds of things. It's not just commercial stuff that we see. It's foreigners, people that live all around us, and God sent them to us and you to them. So I want to close with a story of something God did over 130, 140 years ago in New York City, and this would illustrate how God will reap a harvest, and every time he does, it begins with a concentrated effort of prayer. So in the middle of the 18th century, um, the 19th century, that is, the glow of earlier religious awakenings, if you think of our country's history and the great awakenings that happened, they have faded away, and America was feeling prosperous and little need for God. And so in the middle of the 1850s, plus or minus, the secular and religious conditions were very poor. They were about to crash. America was in a great panic. There was structural problems. Thousands of merchants were forced uh, forced to the wall as banks were failing and railroads were going into bankruptcy. Factories were being shut down and vast numbers of people were out of employment. In New York City alone, over 30,000 people were unemployed. So on October 1857, hearts of a few people were, with hunger and despair, staring them in the face, quietly and zealously, started getting together to pray. A man named Jeremiah Lamphere took up an appointment as a city missionary in downtown New York, He was appointed by the North Church of the Dutch Reformed denomination. And this church was suffering itself from great depletion from membership due to all the people that were leaving New York in regards to all of the economic issues. So, this new city missionary was engaged to make a difference and visit the neighborhood and try and encourage the people. And he felt this was too much. The burden was so great. Use our text and say he had great compassion on the needs that were surrounding him. So he decided to pray and invite others to pray him. It was a noonday prayer meeting in New York City. Wednesday, once a week, he sent out this invitation. As often as the language of prayer is in my heart, as often as I see my need of help, As often as I feel the power of temptation, as often as I'm made sensible of any spiritual declension or feel the aggression of a worldly spirit, in prayer, we leave the business of time for that of eternity, and intercourse with men for intercourse with God. So join me, a day of prayer, every Wednesday, from 12 to 1 o'clock, in the consistory building in the rear of the North Dutch Church, the corner of Fuller fulton and William streets this meeting is intended to give merchants and mechanics clerks and strangers businessmen generally an opportunity to stop their day and call upon god in the midst of the perplexed situations and reserve one hour designed so we could find it time to pray five ten maybe even 60 minutes So at 12 noon on September 23rd, 1857, the door was opened, and there he was, Jeremiah Lamphere, took a seat and awaited. Five minutes went by and nobody showed up. The missionary started pacing the room in conflict of fear and wondering with his faith. 10 minutes went by, no one came. 15 minutes, still no one. 20 minutes, 25, 30, and then at 12.30... A step was heard on the stair rail. The first person appeared, and then another, and then another, until six people were present, and then a prayer meeting began with six people. The following Wednesday, there were 40. In the first week of October, it was decided that that instead of meeting once a week for prayer, they were going to meet every single day during their lunch hour. Within six months, there were 10,000 businessmen gathering daily for prayer in New York. And within two years, as a result of these prayers, Literally millions were converted and added to American churches. Undoubtedly, this is the greatest revival in New York's colorful history, and it swept over the whole history of the city, or the whole city. It was such an order that the nation began to look. You all know how big and much attention New York typically gets. There was no hysteria. There was no fanatic craziness going on. It was simply... People devoting themselves to prayer. And God being faithful to answer those prayers because his harvest is ripe. It's white, Jesus says in John 4. It's ready. Fear, too many of us aren't seeing things the way our friend Jeremiah saw them. As opportunities for God to move. So, friends, do we care? Are we going to pray? And are we going to be entrusted with the message that God gave us? This message of Christmas, this message of God coming down into man, healing and rescuing sinners, conquering death, pouring out his spirit upon his people so that we would be more like Jesus. I hope and pray that we would believe it. Let's pray now. Our Father in heaven, we want to thank you for sending your son Jesus into the world. We thank you for the gift of prayer that because of what Jesus did on the cross, we now have access to your throne room. Or as John Piper said, to the walkie-talkie transmitter that you've given us called prayer. As we look around the world and we hear of murders and we hear of infidelity, we hear about shepherds who are abusing their sheep, God, we pray that you would come. You'd come and fill us with your presence individually. You would fill us collectively as a community. We pray that you would stir up our hearts and help shepherd lost sheep? For those of us who are here who are lost sheep ourselves, would you come to us? Would you fill our hearts? Would you help us see who you are, your love for us, your care for the world, how much you love us by dying for us? We want to pray, God, that you'd help Embassy Church to not care so much about the number of people that come just on a Sunday, but that we would be a sending force to the nation's. You would use us to send out new churches, send out new missionaries, send out people to are going to move across this nation to other parts and be a part of churches there. God, may we not be so consumed with our seating capacity, but by our sending capacity. Use us in these ways, God. We, we want you, Lord of the harvest, to send us out, and that each of us would be faithful to see how we can make a difference with where we're at. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. We have hope and reason to pray. We have reason to believe. that when we look out, there's not just devastation that makes our hearts sick, but there's hope, there's opportunity, and there's a, a victory over all the evil and sin in the world. Give us fresh faith now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.